open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. If you would permit me to pray one more time, and let's make sure that we're doing this with power and not trusting in man. Father, we are totally dependent upon you for anything good to happen here. You, uh, you know what a small man I am, and you know what a strong word that you have. And so, Father, I pray that you would be kind to us this morning and that you would give us ears to hear your word and hearts to receive your word. I pray, Father, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten because we don't need to hear from man. We need to hear from you. So, Father, would you work powerfully and build and establish your kingdom, make more progress in our hearts this morning, we pray, and we'll give you all glory as it is due to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by telling you a story. It's not just any story, it is the story, and it is a true story. It is the true story of the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin with you, and it doesn't begin with me or, or any other man. The gospel story begins with God. Deep down, I think that we know this. I think that as humans, that we, we know that humanity is important. We understand that there's something dignified and, and even eternal about us, but, but deep down we know that we're not it. We're not ultimate. There is something or someone greater than us that exists. That someone is God, the eternal God. God is infinite and eternal, the uncreated one who created all things with just a breath and did this out of nothing. He is triune, which means that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it's out of the overflow of his beauty and his perfections that God has chosen to create. He created humanity in his own image, and because of that, all humanity has purpose and has dignity and has value. But since we're created, that means that we're dependent. We're dependent creatures, and we're dependent upon God, our creator. This also means that you and I were made with a purpose, to love and to worship and to enjoy and serve God. Not ourselves. You were not made to worship and enjoy and serve yourself. If you do that, your life will be full of frustration. We were made to worship and serve and enjoy God. In God's created world, in the original created world, everything was good. God made all things good. All things existed together in perfect stability, in peace, and in harmony. There was no death. There was no conflict, no tears, no frustrations, no toil. But you see, all of that changed. Because even though man was created to love and to serve God, 
which means that we were created to live under his authority, submitting to him, that's not what we've done. Though we were created to love and serve God, man has chosen to rebel. The first humans have rebelled and chosen to serve and love themselves instead. This great and tragic rebellion has caused all of creation to plunge into darkness and chaos and sin. And that's the world that we live in today. Even though there are still remnants of beauty, many, many remnants of beauty, our lives are marked with frustration because this world is no longer whole. It's fractured. It's broken. But the Bible teaches that part of the effect of this sin is that all of us, all humans, you and me, all of our parents and our grandparents, all humans throughout history are sinners, both by choice and by nature. We were born sinners and we gladly choose to be sinners, both. Our sin, the problem with our sin, it's not just that you do some bad things. That's a problem. But our problem is deeper than that. Our sin is that we have a natural disposition and aversion to God. We're allergic to him. And our sin shows up in all kinds of ways. Mainly it's manifested in our pride and in our selfishness, in our independence, in our lack of love for others. Sometimes it's obvious and it's easy to see, but most of the time, many times it's very hidden. It's eternal and internal and secret, even hidden from our own sight. But no matter what the form of our sin is, the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. Now the Bible teaches, if I could summarize, that sin has two major consequences. The first consequence is that sin enslaves us. Our sin enslaves us because here's what happens. When we turn away from God, we have to turn to something else. That's what sin is. We're turning away from God and turning to something else. You and I, when we sin, we turn to other things to look for happiness. We turn to other things to look for our identity and our value, our significance and meaning in life. The Bible has a word for these things, idols. Little substitute fake gods, and they can't deliver. I've tried. Fake gods that cannot deliver any lasting happiness. So let me just say to you this morning, whatever idols you and I are pursuing, anywhere that you're looking for happiness outside of God, you will be miserably disappointed. They can't deliver. You see, instead of giving us happiness, what our idols do is they enslave us. They demand to rule our lives. Our idols rule our time, our energy, our money, our worship. And the Bible says that sin causes us to become enslaved. We read about this this morning. When you exchange God for something created, you become its servant. You become a slave to it and you serve the created things. Friends, sin 
enslaves. Sin enslaves. But the Bible also teaches that sin does not just enslave, but it also brings us under condemnation. Not only are you and I enslaved to the sins in our lives, but we're guilty. We're guilty because of our sin. We stand guilty before God the judge because we have refused to live under his rule. And the punishment for this is severe. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is what, church? Death. Death is the punishment for our sin. You see, our rebellion is nothing less than treason. High treason. And the penalty for which is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. This is why hell exists. Treason demands the death penalty. That's why all sinners die. That's why you and I as sinners will die. This is bad news. This is trouble. But there's good news. Every good story has a hero. And the gospel story has a hero. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is the hero of the gospel story. Jesus comes as a rescuer, a deliverer, and a savior to break humanity out of the prison of sin. And he's come to restore all the world back to its original wholeness. But this isn't an easy thing to do. You don't just snap your fingers and cause this to happen. You see, the rescuer, he's got to have credentials. He's got to have a certain type of resume. The Savior must be truly human. Because if he's going to pay for the sins of man, he has to be a man. If he's going to pay the debt of sin that I owe, then Jesus has to be a man. But he can't just be a man. He can't merely be human because he also has to be strong. Strong enough to conquer sin. Strong enough to conquer sin. He has to be really strong, divinely strong. You see, sinners need a substitute. Sinners need a substitute. We need someone who can live the life of obedience to God that you and I have failed to live. We need someone who is willing to stand in our place and, and bear the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus, the hero, is the substitute for sinners. Because he was both fully God and fully human, he was able to do this. The man, Jesus Christ, was fully God and is fully human. The son, the second person of the Trinity, born of a woman into the world, born of a virgin, which means he is a human, not conceived in sin. Jesus had a body of flesh. Jesus has a body of flesh just like you and me. And yet, unlike me, he lived for 30 years in the midst of a fallen world. And like us, he faced all sorts of troubles and trials. Yet, unlike us, Jesus never sinned. He lived a life of perfect obedience. Jesus never rebelled. 
Jesus never disobeyed. He never gossiped. He never spoke a careless word. He never sought satisfaction in anything apart from God. He was never proud. He was never disobedient. He never slandered. He never lusted. He never lied. Jesus was totally unlike me in the fact that Jesus never sinned. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And you know what that means? That means that Jesus is the only person in the history of the world not to deserve death. The only person who should not die. Yet Jesus willingly went to the cross. He chose the cross where Jesus took our place. Jesus willingly received the death and the condemnation that we deserves that we deserved and he offers us an exchange. The exchange is that Jesus says that if we place our faith and our trust in him, then he will take the punishment that you and I deserve because of the things that we have done in our life. And he will instead, he'll take the punishment and instead he will give us the rewards that he gets for his life. It's as if he took the medals, the, the, the war decorations that he has earned and all the glory and all the honor and all the privilege, he took them off his chest and he pinned them on ours as if we're the hero. This is what he does in this great exchange and this is what he has done in his death. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead, which shows us that unlike all other humans, unlike me, unlike you, Jesus has power over sin. He has power over sin, which means he's stronger than the bondage of sin. He's stronger than death. Jesus is even stronger than hell. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in history because it shows us what the new world is going to look like. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of what God's new world will be like. It shows us, it proves to us, it proves that he has power over death and sin, and it gives us evidence that God is in fact going to renew the world. You see, Jesus' rescue mission was not just to keep people out of hell. That's what we hear about the most, and that is glorious. But that's just part of the gospel. God is restoring the creation back to its original good as if it had never been touched by sin. So it is my great joy this morning to invite anyone who can hear me this morning that if you have not experienced such a salvation like this, if you don't know what it's like to be freed from the bondage of your sin, repent and take this great exchange. Because if not, death, eternal death is coming. You see, the Bible teaches that humans are saved not by doing something, but by believing someone. By believing and relying on someone. In Ephesians chapter 2, we, we know this. It is by grace that we are saved. Through faith. It's a gift. It's not of works. We've heard this if you've been in church, if, if you have grown up around church, and you've heard this your whole life. But what does it mean to be saved through faith, through trusting in someone? What does that mean? 
Well, we trust a doctor when we agree with her diagnosis about our cancer problem, right? That's how we trust her. And we trust in Jesus when we agree about his diagnosis of our sin problem. We then admit our sin sickness. We receive his treatment of forgiveness, and then we rest. We rest in Jesus for our healing and acceptance with God. But we need faith. Faith. We demonstrate faith, for example, in a pilot. When we step on the plane, when we board and trust that he will take care of us, or when we go under a surgeon's knife, is how we demonstrate our confidence. You see, faith is not just buying into the historical fact that some guy named Jesus lived and that he died, or even that he rose from the dead. That's not saving faith. Faith is the restful, the wholehearted commitment of ourselves to Jesus. You've got to get on his plane. You've got to board the plane. This is what it means to believe in the gospel and to be a Christian. And I, I rejoice because I know that many of us here believe this. But we must not stop here. This is not the end of the gospel. If you know any Christians, if you are a Christian or if you know one, there's a good chance you do, you know that Christians still struggle with sin. We still struggle with sin because we're still enslaved to these bodies of flesh which are bound up in sin. But when we trust in Jesus, we're released from the condemnation of sin and the bondage of sin. This means that Christians are free, free from sin. It means that we're able to say no to sin. We have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. We are able to die to self and choose to live for the glory of God and for the good of other people. We're no longer enslaved to living for our own glory. Instead, we're released to live for the glory of God. You see, the moment that you and I are united with Christ in faith, we become alive with Christ. Just like Jesus became alive in death when he rose from the dead. And what this means, the way the Bible describes this is that we are new creations. Do you see, we are new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away, the new has come. God is remaking the world. He is remaking creation. And if you are in Christ, you have been remade. This is why we say you have been born again. You're a new creature. We are the first fruits of this new creation in order to show the world what this new world will be like. God intends that when the lost world looks at a Christian, that they would be able to see what his world was intended to be like, the way humanity was supposed to treat people, the way we are supposed to love others. And though we still struggle with sin, and though we recognize that the creation, the new creation has not fully come, we still live free from sin free from fear, free from despair, and full of hope because we know that these bodies, yes, they will die, but it doesn't matter because we've been set free. Because right now, if you're in Christ, God is actively transforming you. He's actively 
changing you. Christ has done the decisive work, and now Christ is transforming us from the image of the old self to the image of Christ. So this means that, that our lives must be radically different from those around us, those who are still dead, who still worship dead idols and still live under the shadow of God's condemnation. If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. And if you can hear me this morning, and if you have never admitted your sin, if you've never placed your confidence in Christ, if you've never repented, then you are spiritually dead, and you will die, and you will spend eternity in hell, paying the cost for your sin. You're dead. But the gospel is for dead people. The gospel is preached to dead people. So let me invite you this morning, place your faith in Christ. Board the plane and trust him. Ask God to exchange the life of obedience that Christ lived for the sinful life that you're living right now. Repent and be saved. Ask God to exchange the death that you deserve for the death that Christ died. Ask him to open your eyes to see the badness of your sin and ask him to help you turn completely away from your sin. And if you do that, you will be saved. This is the Christian gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it's my joy to proclaim it with my words and with my life, to proclaim it to you this morning. And I cannot think of any better way to introduce a new series, a new series that I'm calling the Gospel for Daily Life, than to do the best that I can to proclaim the whole gospel to you. You see, over the next several weeks, if God, if God wills, if he gives me strength, we're going to be asking the Lord to, to help us grow deeper in our understanding and our appreciation of the gospel. Now, many of you may be like me, a believer, but you may be making the same mistake that I made for most of my life. Perhaps you're, you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, a whole series on the gospel? I mean, that seems like a little much, right? I mean, you've already spent the first 15 minutes, preacher guy, right? You've already spent the first 15 minutes telling us about the gospel, which, which I already know. I want to move on to more advanced things, right? I want to sign up for a Bible study and, and study theology and prophecy and, and, you know, big, big smart stuff, right? I want to go on to more advanced, deeper things. Now, if you have any of this sentiment in your heart, I'm very sympathetic, because I have spent so much of my life with that sort of attitude. It's the attitude both my wife and I had for most of our Christian life. But God changed us, and he's still changing us, and he can change you. The biblical insights that I, that I hope to share with you over these next weeks are among the most precious, life-changing promises and important things I've ever seen in the Bible. It's like light flooded into my heart when these things begin to click. You see, I'm convinced that most Christians, that would mean most of us in this room, live with an impoverished view of the gospel. A very small gospel. It's not a big deal. A small view of 
the gospel. And I think one of the reasons for that is we don't understand the significance of the phrase, the gospel, that we are constantly using. It's a phrase that, that we use often. It has all sorts of significance, but we don't really know what it means. I mentioned uh, that I was planning to do this sermon series to, uh, to, to, to someone in, in the last couple of weeks, and he said, oh, yeah, that's good timing, right before the evangelism training. And, and you know, he's right. I mean, it's, that, that is good timing. You have to know the gospel to explain the gospel to someone else. But the comment got me thinking. So often we think that the gospel is just that. It's something for evangelism or it's something for new Christians. So often, you know, you may have even felt tempted to zone out this morning while I was explaining this to you this morning. Like this is just a basic part of Christianity. And that's unfortunate. The eminent author, Tim Keller, pastor in, up in uh, Manhattan, he, he explains um, this mistake like this quite famously. Many of us see the gospel like, like it's the ABCs of the Christian life. Like it's the most basic part of Christianity. We see the gospel like it's the door, right, to get in to the faith before we move on to deeper things. But as Keller famously said, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel is not just the doorway to the faith. It is the faith. It is the whole pathway of faith. And when we fail to understand this, when we fail to live in these promises, in this reality, we severely handicap our growth in the Christian life. You see, it's not until we apply the gospel to every single aspect of our lives that we will begin to see significant growth. This is the story of my life. This is, I mean, this is my testimony. When I was a young man in college, I became convinced that God is good and that he can satisfy me more than other stuff. I became convinced that I needed him and I wanted to live for him, but I had all this sin had all of these habits, these awful sin habits, I just couldn't seem to stop. I began to really seriously wrestle with my sin, but no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't kick them. I just couldn't seem to stop. I tried resolutions, I tried sheer grit, I tried willpower, I tried extreme accountability. None of that stuff really worked. It didn't produce lasting change. You see, I knew that that all of these patterns in my life were, I could feel that they were hindering my fellowship with the Lord. And, and I knew that they were stunting my maturity and my growth. But you see, all of that began to change when I realized the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is not just for new Christians. The gospel is for Christians. And no matter how much you grow, no matter how much you mature, you will never outgrow the gospel, not even in heaven. You're never going to outgrow the gospel. And you see, for me, when I began to understand this, my life radically changed. It was like I had finally found the power. I'd finally tapped in to the power resource for living the Christian life, and everything changed. Everything changed. I began to see radical, lasting freedom from decade-old sin struggles. 
Sure, I still struggled with sin, and I sure still struggle with it now. The more you know me, the closer you are to me, the more you will see that. I still struggle with sin, but now the struggle is different because now I struggle with gospel power. I struggle with gospel power. Again, Tim Keller tried, he describes this, he compares it to a big gumball machine, right? Maybe you've seen these at like the roller skating rink or wherever they have these things, right? Uh, maybe you've seen one of these things and he describes it that it's, it's like waiting for the coin to drop. You, you know how this works, right? Once you've put the coin into the gumball machine, you have now secured your gumball purchase, right? The fruit is coming, it's gonna come, but you're still waiting on it, all right? You've gotta turn the knob and it's gotta go, go down that little whirly twirly thing, whatever, whatever that is, right? You, you've already paid, but you can turn the knob and you hear the mechanism gradually turning the coin and flipping it over and then it lands onto the bed of the, you know, the other quarters and that's when the coin is dropped. And once the coin is dropped, the gumball is released. And it, it starts making its way you know, down to you. And Tim Keller says it like this, that, that for most Christians, the gospel is like a coin in the machine that hasn't dropped yet. You have secured the, you've secured security, you've secured freedom from the condemnation of sin, but you're not living in, this, in the freedom of being free from the power of sin. The massive fruit of gospel transformation hasn't really been released in our lives that much. In other words, a, way, a better way to put it is like this. The gospel is not just the way that we are made right with God. The gospel is also the way that we are transformed to be made like Christ. To use fancy church words, right? This is, this is church. So, so these, this means that the gospel is not just for our justification. The gospel is also the means for our sanctification. The gospel is not just how we're made right with God. The gospel is how we are made like God. It's both. The gospel is not just the door. It's the path. Now, I'm going to do the best I can in the coming weeks to try to explain this in more depth. Today is really working to lay an important foundation that we will build upon, God willing. But today, I'm trying to introduce this idea to you. And it's important for you to see that this is not my idea, and it's not even Tim Keller's idea. I believe this is a biblical idea, and I want to try to show it to you. Because once you begin to see this, once you begin to see this in the Bible, you'll start seeing it everywhere. You'll start seeing it everywhere, and I want to try to show you as simply as I can this morning. This is, a, this is the best I know how, as simply as I can. So this is why I asked you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and I'll invite you to look down at it right now. If you don't have a Bible open, I'll have it up here on the screen for you. Look down at verse 15. This is what Paul says to the church that is in Rome. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, I want to try to show you two things in this text. First of all, I want you to see the gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for Christians. What is Paul eager to do in this text? Verse 15. What's he eager to do? 
He's eager to preach. You got to see it in the text, or otherwise you're just going to listen to me. I want you to hear it from God. What does Paul want to do to the church in Rome? He wants to preach. Okay, now, of course, there is, uh, we know that Paul wants to preach to unbelievers, right? That's a major part of his calling in his life. But he also says that he specifically wants to preach to believers as well. That's why he's writing this book to the church. But I also want you to see it in another place. Just look up here on the screen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Also Paul writing to another church, the church, the church in Corinth. And this is, this is what he tells those believers. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Okay, what is he reminding them of? He's reminding them of the gospel, okay? The NIV translates this, I think, that I would... Uh, I would proclaim to you, or I, I, would, I would tell you, I want to preach to you, brothers, the gospel that I've already preached. You see, Paul was eager to tell the Christians in Rome about the gospel because he knew the gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for Christians. If this isn't enough, think about the general uh, scope of Paul's letters. Think about most of his letters. This is the pattern that Paul follows in, in most of his letters. He begins writing to Christians, and he tells them all about the gospel, right? All those ABCs. He tells them all about it, and then he spends the second half of the book often explaining how this changes their life and all the things that this does to empower love and forgiveness and parenting and, and freedom from sexual sin and all, and all sorts of things. He begins with the gospel every time because the gospel is for Christians, and this, back in Romans 1, he explains to us why he does that. Because the gospel is power. The gospel is power. Look down at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul's declaration is that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. There are no other places in the Bible that we read about the power of God except for in relation to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else is called the power of God but the gospel and Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God, the power for salvation. Now remember, we've already said back when we reviewed the gospel that, that salvation is not just releasing us from the condemnation of sin. That's an important part of it. But the gospel is also releasing us from sin's power. That's the main thing I want you to see this morning. The gospel does not just release us from the condemnation of sin, but also from the power of sin. The gospel is God's power. The gospel is the power of God for transformation. You want to grow in Christ, you want to be changed, you need to dwell and understand and comprehend and live out the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel, if that's the only power of God, that's what God uses to transform anything. Whether it's a heart, my heart, or whether it's our church, or whether it's our nation or the fallen world, the gospel is the power to save you and the power to change you. The gospel is the power to change you as well as it, as it is to save you. Now, you may be thinking, okay, if you're, if you're tracking with me, you may be thinking, how? How does it transform me? I get that it frees me from condemnation, but how does it actually free me from the power of sin? Because I'm still struggling with sin, pastor. 
I, I understand that. I'm going to try to work that out in more detail in the coming weeks. But I want to begin by giving you a diagram that's been really helpful for me. I like diagrams. I think it, you know, it makes my slow brain sort things out a little better. And I think this is a diagram that helps us lay some foundation uh, for, for what we're going to build upon in the coming weeks. So let me try to explain this to you. All right? Up here on the left, we have this dotted line that represents time. This is your life moving forward before you're in Christ. It's, it's, it's totally flat because there's no growth. A, an unbeliever is completely unable to please God and unable to grow. There's no faith, nothing that pleases God, so it's totally flat, no growth. But then something happens. The Holy Spirit begins to, to work in your life and help you see primarily that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. That's what conviction means, that you don't, you see that you don't keep the law as you should. You realize that you're not as holy as you thought you were. And as soon as you begin to realize that, that God is really holy and you don't meet his standards and you're not as holy as you thought you were, that creates a gap, a gap, right? You see that? Right after the cross, you begin to see, I guess it's right during the cross, but bear with me, right? There's a gap as soon as you begin to see that you don't measure up to God's holiness. And the first time that you realize the gap, that's when you cry out for help. God, you have to fill the gap between my sin and your righteousness. You see, the gap between God's requirements for you and the way you actually live. God miraculously opens your eyes to see that you're a sinner, and this is where the cross comes in because you realize that you can't pay the debt of your own sin. And so you trust in Christ's work on the cross to bridge the gap between you and God. And so through faith in Christ's work on the cross, you're saved. Now what happens is at the very beginning of conversion, at the beginning of your life in Christ, right, as a new believer, we all have a very small view of God's holiness and our sin. We're immature. We have a very limited view of how holy God is and how sinful we are. You could say, like that first cross, that the cross is kind of small to us. Now, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a big deal, right? It's, it's getting us to heaven. It's paying for our sin. It's no less effective for our salvation. But what happens is that when our awareness of God's mercy is small, when the cross seems small to us, when our sin doesn't seem like a big deal, and when God's holiness doesn't seem to be that great, that means our love for God will be small. And our worship for Him will be small. And our sacrifice for Him will be small. And our loyalty to Him will be small. It means we'll be bored in church, right? Because this gospel stuff isn't that interesting because we're not that big of sinners. And so it's no big deal. But the more you begin to see God's holiness and the more you begin to see your sinfulness, the more the gospel, the more the cross grows and the more excited you get and the more appreciation you develop. You see, the more we grow in the Christian life, the more we learn about God and the more we read the Bible, the more we will grow in our awareness of God's holiness. And the more we grow in the awareness of God's holiness, the more we will grow in the awareness of our lack of holiness. The more we'll grow in the awareness of our own sin. And do you know what happens when this takes place? Love and joy and appreciation and awe 
our appreciation and love for Jesus grows as we see how big his sacrifice was for us. It produces Christian fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. This new awareness, awareness is the key word here, this new awareness begins to to unleash the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and all of a sudden we find that we have this new energy, this new energy to love sinful people because we can appreciate how much God has loved us because the cross is really big. Do, Do you see? All of a sudden we realize how big the cross is to fill our sin gap, and whenever we need to fill someone else's sin gap with love or forgiveness, it's small. We have a source for forgiveness. All of a sudden, we find joy because we can't believe that God would actually stoop down and save us. You see, this is how the gospel grows and produces fruit. The verse that this clicked for me, I'll try to remember it correctly, is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, when Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing among you, because that's what it always has done. The gospel grows, the cross grows in our awareness of it, and when it does, it bears fruit. You see, when the coin drops and our eyes are open to see, we begin to realize this, and this is the truth of the gospel, that we are more sinful in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That's the mantra of the Christian. I'm more sinful than I ever thought possible, but I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to dream. Church, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I proclaim to you this morning. Will you please pray with me as as we enter into a time of invitation?